0: From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Kieran Hale is a musician, a recording engineer, and a multimedia engineer. He's also developing an indie video game. He and his wife Priscilla both grew up in Southern California. As millennials, they remember the L.A. riots of their childhood. It was 1992 when public outrage over the acquittal of four police officers for the beating of Rodney King turned into six days of violence, looting, and arson. But Kieran and Priscilla Hale experience their blackness differently. Kieran can easily pass for white. Priscilla has darker skin, and her mother, who came to the U.S. from Belize, insisted Priscilla's natural afro be chemically straightened before she could go out in public. As a teen, Kieran heard stories about the 1898 coup d'etat in Wilmington, North Carolina, that killed an unknown number of citizens exiled black property owners from their homes and businesses and forced duly-elected black officials out of office at gunpoint. But Wilmington was on the other side of the country. Might as well have been the other side of the world. He knew his great-great-grandfather, Alexander Manley, was somehow a victim of this coup. He knew a white supremacist mob burned down the building that housed Manley's newspaper, The Daily Record. But Kieran didn't realize how unique that paper was the only black-owned daily in North Carolina, possibly in the country, in 1898. He also didn't know about the events leading up to the coup, and while he knew Manley survived by passing for white that night, the significance of that fact escaped him until much later. Kieran and Priscilla Hale visited Wilmington for the first time in 2021. Here is our conversation.
1: Essentially, I went back to school to study music, and then during my uh, degree program, my hip broke, uh, which was kind of uh, uh, an ordeal in and of itself, kind of its own thing. I I had to take time off of school, maybe two terms, three terms, because the hip break happened as I I was just turning 30. I was just before 30. And the doctors were like, well, you know, hip replacements, they they only last five to 10 years and we've never had to do one on someone so young. So they didn't actually replace it at first. They patched it up and gave me like some some screws and stuff. And then I just kind of walked on it for a year and a half. Then I did have the hip replacement surgery. Uh, That was supposed to be a a smooth thing, but it, it wasn't. And I had to take more time off of school complications in the second surgery i have nerve damage so i i can't lift on my my left foot i've i've uh, been dealing with that but the doctors were just kind of like you're so young it's kind of weird so i had bone density scans and blood tests and uh, all types of things to kind of pinpoint what the issue was a year and a half later like after all of it, it 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 came out that i have brittle bone disease and so that just became a whole thing in and of itself like it's hereditary as i I started looking into it i basically tracked it down to a particular ancestor line of mine of um essentially my my dad's mother my grandmother who i did not meet she actually passed away before i was born she was alex manley's granddaughter
0: right kieran hale is the great great grandson of Alexander Manley, and he had known that. He remembers hearing those stories growing up about the coup d'etat of 1898 in Wilmington, North Carolina,
1: but- It was so distant and vague. It was like a fairy tale, right? And so to me, this is real, like my hip broke. This is real stuff that I had to deal with.
0: His earlier studies in college years earlier had laid the groundwork for what he was about to learn.
1: And so uh, I did a year studying black history and black psychology, uh, I did philosophy, I did art history and uh, studied like Asian history. Black
0: psychology. Mm-hmm. How is that different from just mainstream psychology? What kinds of things do you learn when you're studying black psychology?
1: right well there's there's a there's a huge amount of internalized control and internalized gatekeeping. like it's just the idea of black women's hair. just, in a, in, a, in a conventional American office setting, is it OK for a black woman to come in with a natural or full afro? Like a lot of people would say no, right?
0: Is that still true? A lot of people would still say no? I think it so. I think,
2: it, I think it's shifting a bit, though, because I'm sitting here with natural hair <laughs> and I've had it for about five or six years.
0: Priscilla Hale is Kieran's wife. She's first generation American. Her family came to the U.S. from Belize.
2: When I started school at four years old, um, you know, all my mo- uh, my mom's family told her, "Oh, you got to relax the girl's hair. You got to chemically straighten it because you can't send them out in the world looking like that." And so, for my mom, you know, she always made sure that our hair was straightened because it was seen as unkempt. And so, because you seemed unkempt, then a lot of assumptions would be made about your person, regardless of whether they're, it's true or not. So. Um, so it was a form
0: of protection for Yeah, you.
2: absolutely. It's a, and, and with black psychology, it's definitely a form of protection. There's, you know, a lot of generational trauma that's been passed down. Both of us have gotten variations of the police mm-hmm. talk. Kieran's watched his dad be harassed before watching my mom and having to be like, you know, deferential to authority figures because she's so frightened of what they can do to her as an immigrant, as a woman of color, as, you know, and so I think that there's a, there's a propensity to believe that black people are more inclined to violence or unruliness, and the truth of the matter is is that black children have to parent themselves a lot because their parents are often just trying to make ends meet and survive, and children internalize the anti-black sentiment that they're surrounded by.
1: There's almost a, um, a bipolarity to being black because you have the mainstream perspective. You have the news and TV and fashion or whatever, and that's clearly skewed to a white perspective. Mm-hmm. Then You have code switching where there is a private culture, a private conversation and being black often is being aware of both at the same time. It's, it's observing the white mainstream, but also communicating and existing in private spaces, but trying to make sure both. Uh, you know what I mean, that you can navigate both.
2: And even within that, there's there's complexity in, insofar as code switching professionally, mm-hmm. code switching when you're amongst your peers, you know, um, definitely making sure that you're able to navigate these situations so that you survive. Like survival is ultimately, you know, the driving force for everybody, but specifically with black Americans, black people in America, you you have to adapt, and it's a really steep curve. To do so.
0: So the study of Black psychology then is how the culture kind of interacts with the psyche of a human mm-hmm. who has to live in a different mm-hmm. reality yeah. from the white majority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I ask permission to talk about Kieran's physical appearance. You do look a lot like Alex Manley. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> who could have passed for white. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, well, why don't you articulate what you've learned about why he chose not to?
1: Uh, yeah, actually, that was well. That was a big inspiration for me, I think. I'd heard the stories and, and everything, but when I actually started uh, writing about it, reading about it, and kind of internalizing it, I realized uh, kind of my whole life in my household, it's almost as if terms like black or white were a bad word. Like, we weren't allowed to say it. Not that we weren't allowed to say it, but it was... It was considered like you would be punished, like you said, a bad word if you implied in any way that you were different from dad or mom. Mm -hmm.
0: So it was charged. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, it was like, don't say that. You're, You're being bad if I were to call my dad black, right? Like we just didn't use terms like that. So I realized as a young adult, I was kind of nebulous. And... I had existed in that sort of vague, nebulous space for so long, but reading Alex Manley and understanding his perspective, I I did choose to identify as black, specifically. I think that was kind of following uh, Alex's model. But until then, I I didn't really have a particular label that I landed on. I knew that I did not identify as white. I knew that when people took me as white, uh, I did not appreciate it or try to correct it somehow um, and tell
0: me why what did that mean when someone just assumed you were a white guy
1: yeah I don't well so for one thing our our, our biggest thing the, the 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 first sort of traumatic thing for me growing up was the LA riots and that mm-hmm. happened when I was six years old seven seven, mm-hmm. seven years old and so it was uh, I think it was in the first grade I was I was a young child but I remember I remember the smell of, of gasoline burning actually but uh, mm-hmm. it was just this – just to understand what had happened and to understand the the anger that was that was playing out uh, thereafter, uh, even as a as a young child and as a as a as an adolescent, kind of figuring themselves out, I knew I I did not belong to whatever that white mainstream. Like I, the problems I had, even as a young kid, white people didn't have them. White people did not experience what I was going through. When I started dating, when I started seeing girls, or talking on the phone or whatever, uh, white girls just didn't get me, didn't understand me, we didn't have the same issues. And I was just like, I I can't talk to white girls.
0: So it was complicated for you as a kid, and maybe you didn't fully understand why at the time, but you just knew there was a gap. Yeah. And so when someone identified you as white, they were skipping over yeah, big parts it was, of you.
1: Yeah, I felt like he was making uh, making an assumption or assuming things about my life that uh, wouldn't have been true.
0: And so let me ask you that question directly then. Sure. Why do you identify as black today?
1: It turns out that my brittle bone disease is sort of an intergenerational consequence of slavery. It's from treatment of slaves in, in my background. And so that specifically, like pff, white people Aren't gonna do. Aren't, aren't gonna have something like that happen in their lives, um, but yeah. Even before that, um, even with studying Ox um, Manley, I I understood that yeah, Manley looked like me, and he could have lived his life completely if he if he chose to, uh, as as white. It's difficult to explain and it's nuanced, but people like me can be black, can identify as black, and experience their blackness regardless of. It's a different kind of black, obviously. I, I, I obviously have much more privilege than someone who appears darker or is more visibly black, obviously. Uh, so I, I, I can't say that I've had the same uh, day-to-day experience as someone like my wife Priscilla or even my dad, uh, but I do experience blackness. I do experience that sort of disassociation from the mainstream white perspective.
0: You're listening to Coastline, My conversation with Kieran Hale, the great-great-grandson of Alexander Manley, and Kieran's wife Priscilla, continues in a moment. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. It's a conversation with Kieran and Priscilla Hale. Kieran is the great-great-grandson of Alexander Manley, publisher of The Daily Record, which was burned down by a white mob in the coup in Wilmington, North Carolina, of 1898. Priscilla, Mm -hmm. tell us first how you and Kieran came to meet.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So Kieran and I met when we were 15 uh, in high school And it was actually someone that I was dating uh, that we met through. But that didn't work out because Kieran and I kind of clicked instantly, you know. And we grew up in a lot of the same areas. We ran a lot of the same circles. Um, So we had some mutual friends. But, um, you know, Kieran grew up in... Inglewood and parts of South Central LA. I grew up in South Central LA and um, a city called Hawthorne, which is adjacent to Inglewood. When I met Kieran, his blackness wasn't in question to me. His friend that we met through is black. And Kieran grew up in a church that is black. And so I think that for his life, when I met him, it was just, he was black. There was no kind of like ambiguity about it, you know, but I've watched him be othered. You know, I've I've watched people literally ask him, "Where are you from? Who are you? What are you? What are you? Oh yeah, what are you? Yeah, people watch. Yeah, people what walk are you? you and say what are yeah. you? Yeah, uh, he's been spoken to in Hebrew, mm. in Spanish. Um, Italian, oh. yeah, when he I, gets, uh, someone thought he was black Italian once. When I, yeah. when I was a
1: senior yeah. in high school, I, I knew how to say, sorry, but English please mm-hmm. in like six different languages because yeah. people will just walk up to me and speak whatever they speak yeah. and assume that I speak it yeah. too. Yeah.
2: So. But, you know, as we, as our relationship developed and we were out in public and, you know, meeting, I was meeting his family and everything like that. It became apparent to me like they're, they're very proud black people, you know, but the trauma that they experienced meant that they kind of were quiet about it because they there are a lot of like real savants in his family, and so you know there's an expectation in academia that you assimilate and you know ascribe to certain values and behaviors, and as a result of the family being, you know, his grandfather was a instructor and a dean for a short time at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, you know, um, his Grandmother he didn't meet was a high school guidance counselor. And so, you know, they really, um, Kieran's aunts and uncles and dad just, they're real diplomatic, you know. And so they kind of have to wear their blackness quietly. Also, they recognize the privilege of having lighter skin. You know, their dad was dark. And so they witnessed a lot of racism traveling with their family through Jim Crow South because Alan Hale was a career military
0: man in the Air Force. Alan Hale an Air Force pilot, but where does he fit in the lineage? Okay, quick review. Kieran Hale, who is with me in the studio, along with his wife Priscilla, is the great-great-grandson of Alexander Manley, editor and publisher of the Daily Record. That was the only African-American daily newspaper in North Carolina, possibly the only one in the United States in the late 19th century. It was Alex Manley's editorial firing back at white stereotyping of black men as rapists that set off the white supremacist power structure during an already tumultuous political climate. Manley suggested white women might engage in consensual relationships with black men, and he reminded readers of the victimization of black women by white men. Powerful whites organized a massacre and a coup in November of 1898, culminating in the destruction of the Daily Record, the exile of black citizens from Wilmington, and an unknown number of casualties. Alex Manley and his brother Frank managed to escape by passing as white on their way out of town. In Washington, D.C., Alex Manley met and married Caroline Sadwar. The couple had two sons, Lewin and Milo. Milo married Lucille, and they had a daughter named Patricia. Kieran's grandmother, Patricia Manley then married Alan Hale.
2: And so they became kind of this power couple moving around because they were able to kind of maintain their grace in the face of, you know, racism and and hate.
0: Yeah, which is, uh, it sounds to me like part of the gatekeeping that Mm -hmm. has to constantly Mm -hmm. go on if Mm -hmm. you're Mm -hmm. living in black skin Mm -hmm. in America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that power couple, Alan Hale and Patricia Manley Hale, had children.
1: Alex Manley, Milo Manley, Patricia Manley Hale, Bryce Hale, Kieran Hale.
0: So, aside from the academic, what does this lineage mean to Kieran?
1: In in my research of my brittle bone disease, uh, basically the the cause of it is inbreeding, and uh, the only story like that in my family that I could remember was my my dad told me a story that both. Milo, his grandfather, and his mother, Patricia, had told him. And that was basically, you know, during slave times, everyone talks about, oh, the the master is going to have his way, goes into the slave quarters and has his way with one of the slaves from time to time. And that was true. But the other end of that, where people don't talk about, is when that's the status quo for decades and decades and decades, then eventually these masters would rape their own daughters. Right. <clears throat> and that's that's kind of an ugly part of it that people just don't really think about or talk about but that specifically my dad told me that and I was like oh okay and I was like did this happen in in our line he's like yes
2: <laughs> so it's it's trim and uh, his wife were related yeah we
1: so believe.
0: that's Alex Manley's mother and father
1: Look, looking mm-hmm. at it I yeah I believe yeah. Alex's parents were either half or quarter related Mm-hmm. <clears throat>
0: One of the other elements that we talked about initially Mm -hmm. was as you were discovering this, Mm -hmm. the impact that it was having on you Mm -hmm. emotionally, psychologically, Mm -hmm. can you sort of talk about that journey and and bring us into where you are now and how you're feeling and thinking about it?
1: Sure, Um, well certainly at the time when it was first happening, I first got the diagnosis and I, and I, I first started uh, you know, reaching out. It was really. It was almost a panic. It was like a, 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 a like, oh my God, what's happening? And and it was a, 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 a stress. I don't. I don't know how to put it. It was, like, like it just lit my brain on fire. I was just like, ah, God, I have to solve this right. Uh, since then, it's 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 on my mind a lot. It's something I'm I'm sort of constantly, uh, you know, working on and uh, getting help with and and writing about. But uh, it's. <sighs> I don't know. I guess I don't know if acceptance is the right word, but I've, I've settled into the idea of it like it is a part of me. It's a part of my past. And so it's really just been a matter of, OK, well, you know, for so many people, it's it's. It's theoretical, or it's academic, or oh, you, you know, so and so used to do this to their slaves, or it's this institutional idea. But for me, it's it, it broke my hip, man. <laughs> like I need to figure this out. So uh, yeah, so it's uh, I've accepted it, and I'm working with it. It's still dark and terrible. You're talking about the trauma,
0: the generational trauma mm-hmm. that you have. The, you have this physical manifestation of it, right? But you also carry perhaps. The, oh yeah. Generational psychology of oh, yeah. that. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, you know, his grandmother, she passed from cancer uh, when she was about forty-seven. Patricia did. But talking to, you know, Kieran's dad and his uncles and aunt, it's like they remember her having pretty bad arthritis almost all her life. You know, and so um, and then from there, everybody else is really small and fine bone. You know, Alan Hale had you know yeah. pretty good stature, but Patricia was just hit five feet very fine bone. Her children take after her like that basically in almost all ways. And um, then down to Kieran, you know, his, he's had a lot of like growing pains within his family. Like his brother had like a lot of bone and joint pain. And so it's realizing that everyone's kind of suffered in this way. Yeah. I mean, looking back, yeah,
1: my my dad uh, described uh, some injuries he had in college that are kind of unusual. I'm just like, you know what, I, th- I, I, I think he might have been undiagnosed for brittle yeah. bone disease and just had it and just didn't didn't really act on it. And looking back, uh, all the, you know. Talk about Patricia, my grandmother. She likely was undiagnosed but mm-hmm. had brittle bone disease. Yeah,
2: unfortunately, the pandemics interrupted, like, you know, genetic testing and doing all these things that are, you know, medically yeah. not necessary, I mean, but we want to do. There's so that. hopefully we can really get it on paper the, soon.
1: Yeah, there, well, there's that, but there's also, I, th- part of me just wonders were, were black folks' needs just not met in that way back then? Were, were black folks just not seen to? I mean, why didn't they catch brittle bone disease? In four generations.
2: I mean, you know, that's, that's, (laughs) you guys, that's that. So a lot of that is black people pushing through pain. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we all still know, understand systemic racism, especially within the medical field. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a lot that went unnoticed. And like my family of of black people, we're, we're a part of that too, where, you know, my godmother just had a really bad stroke and she had just pushed through it, you know, and it wasn't until... She was like, "Okay, maybe I should go in and I feel a little funny. And they were like, no, you had a full on stroke. Like, you know, we can see it in your face. And she just was like, oh, I got to go finish taxes. It's tax season. (laughs) And so, yeah, you know, so there's a lot of just kind of powering through the pain. And um, because you can't you can't be you have to be twice as good as everybody else and only still get half the credit.
0: Kieran, just thinking about how you're processing this. Mm-hmm. There's there's generational trauma. There's actual physical uh, pain mm-hmm. and trauma that you have to deal with today. Mm-hmm. When you started to learn more about the details of Alex Manley's life, how he lived, who mm-hmm. he was, what he did, a lot of people look at this guy, this mm-hmm. historical figure, and think of him as a a, a renegade and a hero, mm-hmm. and you know a one of America's really bright lights. Mm-hmm. Does that figure into how, to your self-identity at all, the positive side of it?
1: Uh, c- certainly, uh, partially, yeah. Uh, definitely, yeah. But he
0: doesn't really answer this, and Priscilla jumps in.
1: I, I don't think that they really
2: celebrated Alex Manley as much as they wanted to. Um, I think that
1: I didn't really hear about him until... No, yeah, you
2: know, one of Kieran's uncles talks about spending summers with Milo, Alex's son, and how, you know, he just kind of... He came back to North Carolina a few times, but avoided Wilmington because of how much pain and suffering, you know, and um, Kieran's the first one to come and visit Mm -hmm. of, you know, Patricia's children and everything, I believe. And so they were real quiet about their relationship to Alex Manley. I think part of that is because you get afraid that someone out there is going to get the idea in their head that, oh, we didn't finish the job there in Wilmington. Let's go get them. And so I think there was a lot of that that kept the family quiet and because of survival and safety.
0: One of the things you said to me in our first phone conversation was you feel like there are still anti-black forces in North Carolina. Yeah. I Mm -hmm. think a lot of people would agree with that. But (laughs) can you talk about how... Where you see that, how how that manifests?
1: Well, just in general, uh, prepping to come here and, and and do everything. There there was a, a fear. There was honestly like, and it's it's irrational. Is it though irrational? To a degree, I, I, part of me was afraid that you know there was just going to be someone with a shotgun uh, at the airport, rate right, ready for me right when I came into town. Like the town is still on high alert for for that damn manly you know but that (laughs) that is
2: that that is the type of 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 that's the mode that Patricia lived in you know it was uh, you know stay ready so you don't have to get ready and what was the one about the The, world
1: the world is the world is coming
2: the world is coming for you is what she (laughs) taught her children and you know because she inherited that from her father through Milo um, you know like Kieran's dad was just telling us a story about how when Milo was working at uh, an office of, of some sort in Pennsylvania, in Philly, he was someone who did a lot of training. And then one day they found out that he was a Negro and they threw him out of a 10 story window. Yeah. And so for him, after that, Milo started organizing um, labor unions because black people and other people of color couldn't join the white unions. And so he had an active role in developing
1: unions. Yeah, me- in, Milo was a he was a mecha- yeah, he was a mechanical engineer, mm-hmm. uh, but just be he he uh, and Alex Alex was still with him at this point, And he just so, sort of because of who he was and because of all of the connections that sort of became of his being there and his working uh, Milo and Alex uh, just Fell into a career of uh, social work, yes, and yes. they they were uh, essentially founded with a few other partners. They were the co-founders of the Armstrong Association, mm-hmm. which eventually became uh, the Urban League. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, he essentially was a negotiator and uh, would work with black labor unions, white politicians. Uh, he he did a great deal of work during World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, there there's. Um, yeah, just a great deal of just because of who he was and the place he was in and the moment in history, uh, he just kind of had a career of black social work.
2: Yeah, but he didn't, Milo expressed some reticence to the family coming back to North Carolina and, you know, making any sort of um, insistence on, on justice, you know, because they were just grateful to get out alive, you know, Alex was just so grateful. And so I think that it was kind of a let sleeping dogs lie situation, but at the same time, there was still
1: we're 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 all I mean, crazy is a harsh word, but we're all kooky, right? We're all we're all uh, disturbed mental and health. kind of not um, yeah. not at our best uh, mental health-wise. Like my 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 grandmother Patricia, her her M O around the house. Like if you were coming around the corner, just in the house. And she, she like would was gonna bump into you. She would actually gut check you, try to like punch you in the stomach. Stay ready. Because the world is coming for you. Cool. You've Got to stay ready. Mm-hmm. So yeah. That's, that's so that
0: was a, as a lesson. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't yeah. like a reaction. Yeah. Well,
2: she had three boys. You know, she had three black boys. Three black
1: boys in, in the Jim 1960s. Crow South, you know, traveling
2: so. America. So it was.
1: Yeah.
0: So you had that kind of visceral, what you call irrational, but maybe not, mm-hmm. reaction when you came to Wilmington. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So far,
1: what's your impression? Uh, well, so far, I've actually been uh, pretty, pretty comfortable, um, pretty, pretty happy. So far, yeah, I've I've had a, a mostly positive experience, but I also acknowledge that I've had a very controlled experience, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: so. You had a behind the scenes tour in the Cape Fear Museum. What did you see? What was that like?
2: That was that was pretty great. they uh, have an excellent exhibit on yeah, 1898. Yeah, they had
1: the whole exhibit that, and we walked through and checked out some of the stuff. It took a little picture next to Oh yeah, next it to looks, his ears, now. I
2: saw, like Kieran's ears. <laughs> you know, Patricia had, like, she was really fine boned, but like, there are some ears that just kind of, Kieran's. they stick out. And I was like, I, those are not your daddy's ears, they're not your grandpa's ears, where are those ears? <laughs> Alex's ears on Kieran, yeah. But the yeah, grand, no. grandparents' effect in genetics, right there. It was, on display. it was it was
1: pretty cool, yeah. And we uh, we had a, a private look at a collection of photos and letters that Milo had. Um, believe he donated in the eighties. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just kind of a private collection, yeah. and we we took photos. We're gonna get scans of all that later. Uh, but yeah, it was it was it was really interesting, and we actually. Uh, found some stuff that we've I've I've basically been trying to track down more and more because my dad asked me to actually uh that not only was there the man the, the daily record there was the manly house that Alex and his um father-in-law had built together and also uh manly and his brothers and his uh this, some of the saguars that were sort of co co-families they married together uh had built a livery and a number of stables uh, and so still today, we're still trying to find uh, information on the livery aspect of it. A lot of the records and a lot of it has just been, um, it's still kind of yeah, up Yeah, at air. some
2: point, Alex did come back to New Hanover County to try and, you know, at least be compensated for what he left behind. And there were zero records to be found, apparently.
0: <laughs> You're listening to Coastline. It's a conversation with Kieran and Priscilla Hale. Kieran is the great-great-grandson of Alexander Manley. We'll be right back after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. It's a conversation with Kieran and Priscilla Hale. Kieran is the great-great-grandson of Alexander Manley, publisher of the only black-owned daily newspaper in North Carolina and possibly the country in 1898. Priscilla Hale just told us that at some point, Alex Manley did come back to New Hanover County to seek compensation for the property he left behind after he was forced to flee during a coup d'etat in Wilmington. There were zero records to be found, apparently.
2: <laughs> but the Wilmington uh, Livery Stable Company was actually, uh, besides the Manleys and a Asajwa, there are a few other prominent black families from Wilmington who were incorporated with these stables. And apparently um, we found like a clipping from a paper in Raleigh. And so apparently Secretary of State approved that incorporation. So we're hoping to kind of keep digging through that yeah. to find more.
0: Okay, so you're you're following the trail of the property, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Have either of you read the Zucchino book that won the Pulitzer Prize for the, I, so I don't think so. so Wilmington's I think lie. lie. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, dad, the dad the yeah my my dad that. has that. Yeah. One. I haven't read yeah. it yet, but yeah. yeah. One of the Mm, Points of contention, I guess, that has been a point of contention for a long time around 1898 is, okay. so we had this thriving professional class Mm -hmm. of people Mm. who were basically exiled from the city, killed and exiled. Mm. Descendants left slowly. I mean, as I learned from John Jeremiah Mm -hmm. Sullivan and Joel Finzel, it, Mm. it was a process. Yeah. But Zucchino concluded in his book, and I think this was based on a graduate student's look at this years ago, Mm -hmm. that it's a myth Mm -hmm. that a whole bunch of wealth was lost that that just didn't happen. And Priscilla, I'm looking (laughs) at your face right now, and you look just stunned. Yeah, yeah. Considering
2: the number of empty lots and what used to stand on them, I I don't understand how you can argue that there was no loss of prosperity. You know, they had just incorporated the livery company in, I believe it was like September of 1897, so the year before. And so um, someone even... uh, I forget where I read it, but someone concluded, like, we don't know. Oh, strength through struggle, how prosperous they could have been given that they only had a year and then they were run out of town. Mm. And then there's also the argument, well, they were run out of town for political and economic reasons, you know. So it's like clearly they found... The black community's prosperity a threat, and that equated to not just socially and politically, but economically as well.
0: If you're able to follow this thread mm-hmm. of of records, and if you're able to prove mm-hmm. that there was some loss mm-hmm. in the Manley family, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. will you seek redress
1: I, of I some would, sort? I would love to, to be honest. Like I, 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 am 100% with that. Uh, the the only thing is, I don't, I don't know if it's a, a realistic goal. I don't know if this community or if this state is even like there if they're if they're willing to acknowledge that sort Mm -hmm. of like that's this is this is honestly my first time you know anywhere over here. It's my first time in North Carolina in the South at all and so uh yeah I I just I don't know if that's a realistic expectation but I I would love it and I'm 100% with it uh but that's kind of part of why yeah. we're here is to, is to is to assess if that's even something we could realistically. And, and
2: Kieran's not the only one. You know, in Tulsa, we have the survivors and their descendants who have filed with the county to kind of address this issue.
0: Priscilla Hale points to other examples, including a beach in California that was taken using eminent domain.
2: My perspective comes from being a first-generation American.
0: Where did your parents come from? My parents
2: came from Belize. So that's a small country just south of Mexico under the Yucatan Peninsula. So a lot of this history and the behaviors and ways that people move within each other in American culture just didn't make any real sense to me because of, you know, I, I don't have that context. I don't have this family
0: history there's but, a divergence for you yeah between yeah like the way your family came up in your generational history versus yeah just the American yeah culture? you know
2: and so it's like you know Belize was colonized you know that there's no question about that you know um and oppression of black and indigenous people exists there it's just somehow like more genteel it's <laughs> it's like it's it's and I don't know if it's just because it's the Caribbean way of life to be you know, laid back, <laughs> but it's definitely not talked about out loud, and so I think what's empowering to people in my generation and younger is seeing this conversation happen in America, seeing us talk about systemic racism, and seeing more and more people stand up for it to to end, you know, oppression via institutionalized racism, is really empowering. You know, um, so and especially since like. For Belize, especially the black diaspora of Belize, a lot of them immigrated to America. And so a lot of us have that experience where we're like, OK, you know, this dynamic is kind of weird. We know that we're looked down on, but it's like, why exactly are we looked down on, you know? But now there are conversations where, you know, we're like, hey, this is this is not OK. And even I, I challenged my mom on some of her preconceived notions and the stereotypes she was grew up with and was conditioned with and watching her try to navigate that and learn it's a beautiful thing but it is uncomfortable and it is awkward but these conversations are happening out loud and i think that it's it means that we can see change in this lifetime you know things pivot so quickly we've been so welcomed here and i know like kieran said we've had a very guided experience but like we weren't guided in the record shop you know like matt was just a good human he and he saw us as good humans too Mm -hmm.
0: That's Matt of Gravity Records in downtown Wilmington.
2: I was hesitant to come. You know, I had the discussion with Kieran, like, should I straighten my hair or not? And, yeah. You did? yeah, yeah, yeah. Because thought about straightening. Yeah, your hair I thought to about straightening here? my hair to come because I did not want to disrupt anything. You know, like I we're we're here to to observe and and to take it in and and blend as much as possible in that sense. And so, um, I mean, even in Los Angeles, I. Like, natural hair is still not something that a lot of black people uh, wear out, you know. It's becoming more and more accepted, but yeah, I, I really had to consider do I straighten my hair or not so that, you know, I don't stand out or I don't draw extra attention or unwanted attention, you know. So that that's always a consideration. So
0: the two of you really came into this with what kind of armor do we need? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. how do we navigate Absolutely. this and make sure we don't yeah, set was, anybody off? Yeah. or?
1: Well, we, I, yeah, I mean, this is – I've been working on this just on my end for the past almost five years, mm-hmm. like four years and change. And, yeah, it's been a constant conversation of will we be safe
2: mm-hmm. there? Yeah, his dad was very anxious, yeah. you know, <laughs> sent assault, <laughs> took us took tickets to the airport and was – was the tightest hug I think I've ever received from dad, even yeah. after our wedding. Like <laughs> that was such a tight hug, you yeah. know.
1: So um, it's it's been a, I mean, especially just with, with my family kind of this is this is, you know, this is like a, a uh this is like a fairy tale land to me it's it's, al- it's almost it's almost hard to believe that this is a real place mm-hmm. like i've heard stories of this place as if it were uh you know narnia or something mm-hmm. so to actually be here and to to meet and interface with people on the other side it was really important to us but um we came certainly yeah, something with, we were nervous about mm-hmm. something we had to prepare for a lot mm-hmm.
0: Kieran and Priscilla Hale are working with the new Hanover County Community Remembrance Project, which is working to memorialize victims of the 1898 massacre. Part of that effort is a soil collection project, a memorial ceremony planned for November 6, 2021, at the 1898 Memorial Park in downtown Wilmington. Kieran tells me he wants to visit Manly, North Carolina. It's a town, he says, that grew out of the descendants of Charles Manly's slaves. Charles Manly was Alex Manly's grandfather, a white man, and he was the governor of North Carolina from 1849 to
1: 1851. Just just googling and finding Manly, North Carolina, discovering that that was a real place, it freaked me out. It was like, it was like, finding out that magic is real or like the force is real like i had a predetermined destiny it's something that came hundreds of years before me was affecting me now and i had a role to play in it and it was kind of terrifying it freaked me out but uh, but yeah that's essentially what we're what we're here to do is to confront the fairy tale of it and discover the reality
2: through the through the manley's Kieran definitely has a family history of activism and you know uplifting the community um, he's got a cousin, Rue, in Portland, who does amazing work with LGBT queer youth um, and uplifting and supporting them in the community. His uncle, Mark, is someone who was prolific in the 80s um, in the literary community. Mark actually came out in his high school paper because he was so inspired by Alex's courage in you know, his, his publishing that he wanted to follow in those footsteps. And so... You know it's it's hard enough for anybody to come out you know uh, as queer right now in any shape or form but to do so in
1: very publicly in, in the, the 70s 1970s, yeah, yeah it took a <laughs>
2: tremendous amount of courage even kieran's dad so kieran's dad just retired from the post office after i think like 30 years or something Over like that yeah now. yeah you're you're 36 so yeah. yeah he's been doing that basically you did it your whole life mm-hmm. and even They have these like family day events at the facility and I was able to join them once and just seeing the way that people looked up to Bryce and the way, the the respect that he garnered. And so Kieran definitely has a family history of, you know, being a leader whether or not you want to or you meant to, you yeah. just naturally there's, there's, step forward yeah. to, to do the right thing. There's just
1: a, a number of personalities in my family that are just exploding with purpose and brilliance mm-hmm. and just have to do something fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's just kind of a, a running like theme. Like I'm, I'm kind of used to it by yeah. now. But uh, yeah, it's it's a thing. But I mean. they're
2: not self-important people at all. No. You know? and, no. I, no. and And that reflects kind of like I see the way that people talk about Alex, you know, and then Milo later. Um, it's very much, this is what we have to do, so we're going to do it, you know. And I think that's kind of one of the reasons why Kira and I work so well together, because that has also been my life, you know. Like, my mom was a single mother. Um, she'd had five children. And Priscilla was, I'm
1: sorry. I'm, no, it's okay. I'm sorry. Priscilla was uh, the victim of a violent crime yeah. when she was 12. Yeah,
2: so oh, I was so living sorry. in Los Angeles.
1: And so that, that, honestly, I mean, she, you're always kind of... Stranger danger, you're always Mm -hmm. kind of in a defensive mode. Mm -hmm. She has a lot of uh, trauma still that Mm -hmm. she's working through. And that was definitely a part of our preparing for this. Yeah, 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 (laughs)
2: because I was uh, a home invasion that broke in uh, in December one morning um, as I was about to get up for school. And he came, as I was getting up, he was at the vanity behind me and he jumped on me and he stabbed me three times. Oh, And so, um, yeah, like my mom, now, you know, was navigating having her safety broken, you know, her children's lives threatened. And so uh I definitely uh understand needing to step up and protect, you know, and I, I really I I relate strongly to that in, it, it, in it, Kieran's family. It,
1: it, it's become I'm sorry, I am sorry, to say No, it, but no. it's 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 become just your defensive psychology. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost completely rewritten your perspective mm-hmm. on life. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, yeah.
2: It, it definitely, I mean, I was 12. So, you know, that that's a moment in life that's transitional for any person. But having that happen and then about a year, not even a year later, my mom had uh, my brother and he was born at 20, 24, or 26 weeks, one pound, 12 ounces. So she had a premature baby. And um, again, because of stress, you know, she had to work throughout her pregnancy. And, um, you know, she was in her mid-30s and that just took a toll on her. So having, you know, the home invasion happening and me being hurt and then having Sammy and having to navigate what it ha- having a disabled child, you know, and then having a black disabled child and reckoning with all of that has been hard. Um, but again, it's been about, you know, I, I would step up and help my mom with my sisters and my brother and I attended doctor's meetings with her and stuff like that because you just have to, um, I mean, do the best that you can, you know, and... I understand that that's something that's, that's relatable to everybody, you know, and and I think that's something that I've been trying to keep in mind here. Like, I see that this is a town where people are really trying to uplift, you know, against the history, against the systems in place right now. It's inspiring to see that and it makes me want to step forward
0: and, and contribute as well. And so this may be premature, Mm -hmm. but maybe we could end on this idea. As you see your advocate or upliftment role grow, Mm -hmm. how does it look down the road? Mm -hmm. What do the two of you see yourselves becoming?
1: That's a fascinating question. I don't know. Uh, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I definitely would like to uh, contribute to the conversation in any way I can. I mean, I acknowledge uh, sort of my privilege and my sort of closeness to whiteness. But at the same time, I've kind of I've suffered for my blackness. I've suffered uh, in various ways. Uh, but I I don't know. I'd, I'd, I'd like to, you know, uh, whatever measures are taken to protect the black people of, of this community, of, of this place, uh, I'd like to be a part of it.
2: Yeah, okay. I think for my part, um, you know, I work in early childhood education. And so for me, if we don't teach tolerance, love, and respect from birth, it's it's going to be really hard to, to crack some of these foundations and completely rebuild. And so for my part, I, I definitely am learning how to incorporate kind of the, just kind of the the critical thinking that we need to question whether or not our fears and our hate are rational, if they're grounded in reality or not. And um, children are so resilient. And I wish people were able to hold on to more of their childhood resiliency as they get older. You Mm. know, life is exhausting, I get it. But for me, I, I always try to keep in mind that the, all all of our behaviors, the 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 way that our personalities manifest, are conditioned by the environments that we're in. You know, it's not just nature and it's not just nurture. It's both hand in hand. And so for me, I definitely am am really mindful about, the conversations that i have with children the respect that i treat them with and expect to be treated with and the respect that they have for each other you know and and try to make it relatable to them so that going forward when they are our age and they're the ones who are in charge they have that empathy and compassion built in to them and it's second nature you know
0: Priscilla Hale <laughs> <laughs> Kieran Hale Thank you. Thank you both so much for sharing yourselves with us today. That's this edition of Coastline. Heartfelt thanks to Kieran and Priscilla Hale and to Professor Kim Cook, Director of the Restorative Justice Collaborative at UNCW, who made this interview possible. And thanks to UNCW graduate fellow Jonathan Furnell. Coastline's Technical Director is Ken Campbell. You can find this episode at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.